Well, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And we've been following a, a series, having a series of sermons on what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. And uh, this morning I want to begin to talk about uh, the work of sanctification. Um, one of the works of the Lord uh, in us and for us. And uh, I'm going to split it into two because this morning we're going to speak about um, an aspect of sanctification which I'll come to in a moment. But I want to read uh, Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through to 14. And Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will, not ha- will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So we remember that Christ has come to fulfill his uh, saving work for us, on the cross, and in his resurrection from the dead. And that is the the central gospel message. That's what we proclaim to the world, that Christ has died and has risen again from the dead in glorious victory. And in doing so, he's dealt with all our sins uh, on the cross. And uh, and this whole uh, complex of events, a sequence of events in the life of Jesus, his life, death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven... His continuing ministry at the right hand of the Father are all essential for our salvation. You you drop out any one of those things and there is no salvation. All of them matter uh, and all of them are necessary and vital. What we're looking at in this series though is is how that work of salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ um, is actually applied uh, to us. How it comes to us personally. How we receive that salvation. 
And it's, and we're looking at uh, how Christ does that, and he continues to do that. And it's necessary that we do that. And I, I'm going to begin with a quote from John Calvin. It's always good to quote John Calvin. And uh, in book three of his institutes, so institutes have got four books. The third one begins to deal with the application of redemption. So book two is about redemption. Book three is about the application of redemption. Book four is about the church and how it's organized. And uh, book three begins with this. He says this. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Now what's he saying there? He's saying that Christ has done all this work in the past, but as long as Christ, the risen Christ, remains outside of us, it is useless. It's of no use to anyone. So Christ has to come. Now we're going to deal with union with Christ later on. Uh, and gather a lot of these things together. But it's really important for our sanctification that Christ comes into us, as it were. And uh, we are not separated from him. We don't separate ourselves from the, 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 the events of 2,000 years ago. But actually Christ comes to us. So today we're going to, I'm going to talk about sanctification and spend the next two weeks on this. Uh, now, sanctification is not a word that we use uh, in everyday English. Um, so you, it may be a bit unfamiliar to some of us. Maybe there are other words that we use that come close to the meaning of it. Uh, so, for example, we talk about the sanctity of human life. There's a sense in which it's special and holy and set apart. It needs to be preserved and guarded and kept. It's special, uh, the uh, human life. Or, you know, sometimes churches uh, will have a... Uh, will call their place of meeting the sanctuary, the holy place that's set apart for the, the activity of worship. And, uh, but sanctification is, is connected to the idea of holiness and being set apart. Uh, but it's not a word we use every day. And it's connected with that verb to sanctify or, uh, to put it another way, to make holy, to become holy. It's actually the same word in the Greek. Uh, to make holy. And so, uh, sanctification really means this process by which you and I, as Christians, we are made holy by God. And so what we're going to look at this morning is how it is that God comes in this, this particular way to apply salvation to us. Um, how God in applying the benefits of Christ that he's won for us on the cross, how he begins the process of making us more holy. This is a work of God. We need to really emphasize this. This is not about, uh, it's not actually about us. We're involved in it, but it's actually God's work in us. It is a work of God. Read the catechism and you'll see that summary of it. But uh, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to uh, think about how God makes us more holy. And indeed, that's, that's what Jesus prayed. Remember in the, the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, just before he was arrested and taken off to the cross, uh, he says this, he prays for his disciples, and he says, Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate or I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. That word consecrate and sanctify, the same word actually in Greek. And so Jesus looked forward to our sanctification and he prayed for it and he expects it in the lives of his people. Sanctification. Expects you and I to grow in holiness. Now why are we spending a couple of weeks on this? Well, it's because sanctification, I think, is described in two ways. Um, One way, which we'll come to in more detail next week, is... That the ongoing progress of holiness in the Christian. Uh, for example, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so, this is what we're going to look at next time, is this... Uh, process of bringing holiness to completion as Paul puts it or perfection and it's about the present and future development of holiness or sanctification but on the other hand there is a a past aspect not, not just a present and future but a past aspect of sanctification so for example Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 11 He's just listed the characteristics of all those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says to the Christians, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So sanctification is a past event, something that's happened in the past. And it's been, if you like, a definitive act of God to sanctify his people for himself. It means that these new Christians are set apart to live this new life of holiness in Christ. And this is actually what all true Christians are. They are uh, uh, sanctified people. In fact, the word that Paul uses, and is in the English translation, is saints. Every single Christian is a saint, not a special elite. You know, the marines of the Christian life. (laughs) You know, the commandos, you know, the super duper spiritual people. But every single Christian is a saint. And... uh, that's, and so it's a very important doctrine for every, everyone. Now, I rather suspect that all of us have got um, problems on, in ongoing holiness. It's a fight and it's a struggle. Um, and, some, and partly the reason for that is we do not understand adequately what God has done definitively for us in the past. And that's why I want to talk about this morning the definitive sanctification uh, of God. And so what I want to, so three things I need to deal with this morning. What, uh, first of all, what is the problem that definitive sanctification addresses? What's the problem that definitive sanctification addresses? Secondly, how actually has it been dealt with, that problem? 
And thirdly, what that means for us. So first of all, the problem that definitive sanctification deals with. Now, of course, the problem for every single human being is the problem of our sin and our relationship to God. Sin has come into the world. It has ruined everything. Everything is tainted by sin. No matter how nice and good and and wonderful you may feel about yourself or other people, uh, everything is tainted in some way or other and ruined by the sin of our human hearts. From every human being to every human institution, it is tainted by sin. It ruins our relationships with each other, and especially our sin ruins our relationship with God, the God who's made us in in his image. And so this morning, there's a particular aspect of sin I want to consider. Now, there are many aspects, several aspects of sin. So let me just mention a couple that we've already dealt with. And then we'll come to the one I want to deal with this morning. The ones we have already dealt with. The first is that sin makes us unrighteous. And puts us under the condemnation of God's law. And so merits God's wrath against us. And so, to be free of that wrath, we need the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He dies in our place, takes our sin upon himself. And deals with the penalty of our sin. And takes away the condemnation. And so we are able to be justified. So the penalty of sin causes... uh, The answer to that is that we are justified in Christ. Another aspect we dealt with last week is that sin causes a separation between us and God. Uh, And we rightly deserve to be cast away from him. Because of our sin. Yet Christ's work on the cross brings about reconciliation between God and man. And more than that, he, more than just simply removing the, uh, the partition caused by our sin. He actually welcomes us into the family and adopts us into the family of God. And so it's not just reconciliation, but it's more than that. It's inclusion into the family of God. So adoption, and we dealt with that last week. And we have this marvelous fellowship with the Father now. And we can say, Abba, Father, gloriously, with all, all our hearts. But there's a third aspect of sin, which I want to deal with now, which uh, to do with this idea of sanctification. And for this passage, we need to just read a couple of verses. Let me just read verse 6. You may like to follow with me in, in verse 6. And he says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or verse um, uh, 17, uh, which we didn't read this morning. uh, But he goes on with the same idea. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart Uh, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. And then verse 18, having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So, sin is not just a matter of uh, doing a few things wrong and having a black mark against our account. But actually what uh, what sin does is it enslaves people. It puts them under chains. And keeps them beholden to their sinful desires and sinful passions. And 
and you, you can maybe imagine what it must have been like to be a slave. Uh, you know, and modern slavery is not uh, slavery in modern times has not gone away either. It's very common, more common than perhaps people realize or like to think about. But when you're a slave, you have no control over your life. You do not make independent decisions. You have to do what your master says. You have no freedom. You're utterly controlled as a slave. And, and in Rome, uh, some slaves might attain to some degree of autonomy and responsibility within the Roman household, but they were never really free. They could never really walk away and go and do their own thing. They couldn't get a job. They, they, had to need, had to have, they couldn't own property. Uh, unless they were redeemed, they were always going to be under the, the thumb of their master. That's what life as a slave is like. Well, this is what it's like with sin. Sin is not just, as I said, not just a matter of marking off a few things we've done wrong in our lives. But actually, the way that Paul speaks about sin is that it's like a master who cracks the whip and tells you what to do. And people are always, always under the thumb of this master called sin. Now, it may seem to you that is, and people might say to you, well, I am totally free. I can do what I like. The question is, what do you like to do? Are you truly free to do what God has made you for? Or are you driven by something else? And that's the point. You're driven by sinful passions. And what people think is freedom is actually being controlled by your sin. Sin rules your life, you see, if you're not a Christian. And people are blind to it. It's a slavery. People are going, you're going to meet with at work this week. You're going to sit next to in the office or whatever, or wherever you go and work. If they're not Christian, they're enslaved to sin. Driven by their passions, following their hearts and doing what they like. Friends, if you, if you and I are to be truly saved for all eternity from the sin and all its effects, yes, we need to be justified and forgiven and acquitted and accepted. We need to be reconciled to God and adopted into his family. But also we need to, be, to receive the power and authority to be re- released from the power of sin. This power of sin has to be broken and destroyed. Or to put it another way, We need to be sanctified. No longer enslaved to this master, but set free and put under Christ. Set apart, separated, devoted to God. God. Free from the old master, under the authority of a new master, Jesus Christ. That is who the new master is, Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He leads his people out from the darkness of slavery into the freedom of the glorious light of his kingdom under his wonderful kingship. And we all willingly submit to his lordship and kingship and his rule in our lives. So we see the the problem that definitive sanctification deals with. It deals with this problem of being enslaved to sin. And it frees us up to be committed to Christ. 
Well, let's move on now. And think, how, how is this slavery broken? And the answer is Christ's victory over death. Christ's victory over death. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Romans 6. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin once for all, uh, for the, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives uh, to God. And uh, we're going wor- to work backwards through his argument here. But I want to start with what Christ has done. And this is where definitive sanctification starts. It starts with the death of Jesus on the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And it says that he died to sin. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that he was a sinner. Uh, Yes, he became sin for us. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us he became sin for us. But that doesn't mean he was a sinner. He takes the liability of all the sins upon himself. He bears the sin. He becomes sin for us. Sin is imputed to him just as his righteousness is imputed and reckoned to us. And so he really suffers for sin on the cross. He died. But then notice what else he says in verse 9. He rose from the dead and he will never die again. Now you might look at that and you might think, well, perhaps Jesus just defeated death. Perhaps it was an optical illusion or something like that. No, he really dies. And he really obtained, obtained a victory over death. He really did die. He went to the place of the dead. His soul was separated from his body. But then gloriously he was raised to life. And he's not a cheat therefore. Jesus Christ has defeated the power of death and the power of sin. In his death and resurrection. And this is demonstrated for us in the fact that he rose from the dead. Well what does that mean for us? Well here's the step that we need to take. You ready? Here's the step we need to take. Work back with me to verses 6 and 7. And he says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Set free from sin. Through Christ's death. So what was going on here? In the cross. Well, my old self was being crucified with him. Not just in some abstract legal way, my sin, the penalty of my sin being dealt with, although that's true. But in some real sense, my old self was crucified on the cross. Now there's something of a mystery about this, because that was 2,000 years ago, and you're here. And so am I. But we can't get away from the fact that this is what Paul is saying about what happened on the cross. It wasn't just an event 2,000 years ago. Somehow my old self was dying on the cross. My old pre-Christian self, my sin-ridden, enslaved self. And And somehow or other, through Christ on the cross... That self, old self, was being dealt with once and for all. For me. 
And incidentally, can I just say, that's why baptism is so important. Did you notice that Paul mentions baptism in the first few verses? He begins talking about baptism because he explains that baptism is signifying this amazing death of the old self and the resurrection of the new self. In the death of Christ. In the death of Christ. In the resurrection of Christ. So whenever we remember our own, own baptism, or we see somebody being baptized, we remember this great sign of being united to Christ, as he said, in his death and in his resurrection. I hope you, you realize that when somebody's baptized, and it doesn't happen very often in this church, and we pray for more of it, but when you see somebody being baptized, that's a testimony to you of the grace of God in Christ's death and resurrection for you, if you've been baptized. And so you remember all that Christ has done for you. The sign really matters. It really helps you. And it seals our faith in his work that we too have been saved and set apart for him. So this is how the problem of our sin, of being enslaved to sin, has been dealt with Christ's death and resurrection. And we too share in that. So what is it, thirdly, what does that mean for us then? And it means freedom from sin's power. That's a bold claim, isn't it? Freedom from sin's power. But let me show you why this is true for the Christian. Next week we'll look at what it means for the Christian living. But what I want to focus on is the aspect of it, of being separated. And the way that it really comes to us is through faith. Now you know that justification is by faith. Adoption is by faith. So is sanctification. Through faith. Now, why does that matter? This is all about what we believe now, about what's happened to us. Verse 8. Lost it. Where is it? Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You see the centrality of faith? We believe. We are to believe that the old self is dead, that it was crucified. And so, he goes on to say in verse 11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are alive to God in a way that we never were before, and now we have to think about ourselves in a new way. Now the sin in you will always want you to believe that you are under its power. Because sin is still present. We accept that. Sin is still present. And it will try and convince you that it rules you. And every time you sin, it will pile in and say, look what you did. Look what you did. You're under my thumb. You're under my thumb. We need to learn to believe in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to begin to think about ourselves differently. As men and women who have been raised to life. And this is not just a a mental fiction that we work up in ourselves. If you believe that God has called you out of darkness into light, 
If you believe that he has regenerated you, if you believe that he has given you faith and repentance, then it's, no, it's a small thing to say, well, now I'm free of the, the power of sin. Sin no longer rules over me. So I need to start by thinking differently about my life. And, and this is the reality of our lives if we're Christians. The, what, sin will tell you something else. Temptation will tell you something else. The world will tell you something else. It will tell you you're a failure. That you've sinned again. That you're not really free. But the Bible tells you if you're in Christ, you are free. This is your new status. And we are released from slavery and truly free. <clears throat> now, of course, that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, there is the presence of sin in our lives. Uh, it will not be fully removed until glory. And sometimes sin does give us this impression that it's still in charge. Christians are always aware of sin. And you could be tempted to think, how will I ever be free of this? How will, I will always be under the influence of sin. I'll always be under its thumb. But no. This is one of the occasions where we have to believe what God has said to us in his word about us. It isn't true what sin says to us. What's true is God's word. And we must believe that. And it's confirmed to me in my baptism. How does baptism practically help you day by day in the face of all those temptations? You're able to turn to the devil as Martin Luther did and he says, I'm a baptized man. And that is the answer he gave to Satan. Whenever he was tempted, he said, I'm a baptized man. Christ has died for me. Christ has lifted me up. I live because he saved me. So practically, baptism really helps, if you think about it correctly. Well, how do we account for the fact that there is still sin present in our lives? Well, I think an, an analogy might be something like this. When two armies face each other in battle and one wins and liberates the population, the power is broken of the enemy. But there are still renegade bands of Soldiers going around terrorizing people and exercising their diminishing power. But they're being mopped up because the victory is won. And that's the same with sin in our lives. It's being mopped up. You're being sanctified. And we'll deal with that more next week. So do not think that the presence of sin in your life, Christian, means that there's no victory. Quite the opposite is true. Definitive sanctification. If you're a Christian today, if you're baptized, then know for sure that you have been set apart by Christ in his death and resurrection. You are holy, you are a saint, and you will see the continuing grace of God in your life as you're changed progressively into Christ's likeness. That definitive break has been made. Definitive sanctification. And you will progressively see changes in your life. And you need to think that way. You need to believe that that's what's happening to you. Because that is what's happening to you. As a Christian. 
And so we'll look at that progressive sanctification next week. Isn't that a great doctrine? Definitive sanctification. We are free in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful work uh, through your Son. Thank you that he has broken the power of cancelled sin, as we sang earlier. Sin is cancelled, but also its power is broken. And we thank you that we're free. Help us, we pray, to, to consider carefully our condition before you. Not to be tempted by the devil to think other uh, we're still under the influence of sin. But rather to remember we are in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.